Welcome to The Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and unlearning the programming within us. Let's uncover your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in The Great Unlearn. I, I had nothing to prove. Um, I never have. I don't think I'm ever going to have anything to prove. People find out I would do Ironman triathlon. They would say, oh, you know, like, how do you push yourself so hard? And I'm like, push myself. I don't push myself. I just enjoy it. Willpower is actually finite. You only have so much. You have like a reservoir of willpower. And when there's hard things you got to do in life and business and whatever, you want that to be full. You don't want to be depleting that to go in a workout. It's not balance. It's synergy. And there's a big difference. Everything you do is expand. And what do you get in return for that? So efficiencies, finding efficiencies like, hey, I'm giving up time and effort and energy, but what am I getting back? Vegas DNA is innovation and solving problems some people don't even know they have. Some, some people can't agree to disagree. They, they believe in right and wrong. Others just believe in difference of opinion. They're very different things. Like you can sit down and be like, yeah, well, we just don't agree, but that's okay. That's cool. And others are like, like they keep trying to make their case that they're right and you're wrong. My approach is just, well, this is what I do and works for me. We got a lot to cover today. I mean, you're a, an Ironman triathlete. You've launched an incredibly successful brand back in 2004. I didn't even realize it, Vega. Um, you're part, you're a co-founder in a brand that I've personally invested in, Pulp Culture 101 Cider House. We're going to talk about that. Um, you've authored books. You were an executive producer on Game Changers, correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot for us to cover today. Um, I'd love to just start with like your background, obviously Canadian, but give us a little bit more of like, you know, as we're going to talk about those things, like what's important to know about you and how you grew up that put you on this particular path? Well, in, uh, in high school, I, I, I started playing hockey. As, as Canadians do, very late. I started at, I was 14. Most start at five, which is just weird, right? It's, it's just. I started at five up in Maine, which is, I guess, yeah. maybe part of Canada, but. Yeah, no, and great hockey program at Maine, too. A lot of, uh, you know, top NHL players came out of Maine, yeah. as, uh, as I'm sure you know. Those but, are my boys, the Black Bears. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so I started late. I, I'd played soccer before at, you know, starting very young, um, but just recreationally. I just really enjoyed always being outside and just running around and stuff. It just, I grew up near a forest in, in Vancouver and it was just sort of a fun thing to do. So I started late. Another friend um, who's the same age started at the same time. So we kind of had each other to, uh, to support, I, I suppose. But yeah, starting at 14, you know, you start off pretty bad skater and you got to <laughs> learn. And so I just played rec, like just, you know, nothing um, too serious, but I thought, well, I could maybe get better if I became fitter and stronger. So I started running in the mornings, going to the gym. And I, I just, I realized I really liked running and that sort of became mm -hmm. my thing. And then I only played hockey for two years, but, um, the running is, is what, uh, really just spoke to me. And like I say, I grew up near a forest, amazing trails, the best trails you could find anywhere. And I just loved it. I, you know, I'm not a competitive person by nature. It wasn't wasn't that when people hear I've done Ironman and I, I used to do it full time as a career I did for seven years and 
they assume that I'm going to be very type A personality <laughs> and, and that's very competitive. Usually, yeah, that's usually the, uh, the cheat sheet on those folks. Yeah, it is. And, and something to prove whether it's to themselves or someone or whatever. I, I had nothing to prove. Um, I never have. I don't think I'm ever going to have anything to prove, but it was just the enjoyment of being outside and, and running. And I thought if I could make a career out of that, that'd be ideal. I wouldn't have to you know, work a regular job and I could just do what I wanted all day long. And I realized making a career out of being a runner is very, very difficult. Um, you know, the top runners in the world are, are often not um, from North America. Um, it's just, it's really tough to do. Um, but triathlon is actually a little bit easier in that respect in that, you know, growing up in like a, you know, like a middle-class suburb, you have access to a swimming pool, you have access to, you know, a bike and places to ride. So I thought, okay, well, I can do this. And that, by the way, is what I actually love most about running is that it's so pure and you don't have any economic, um, hurdles. Uh, and that's why every country on earth has produced at least a few great runners, which I think is just, is, is so nice. But I thought, okay, well, I have some advantages here. I can have a bike and I can swim in a pool. So I'm going to take advantage of that. And um, started doing triathlon and, and really enjoyed that. Running's always been my first love, but the cycling I, I got uh, much better at. Swimming, I've always struggled at, but I did improve. But I did start racing full-time. Uh, it was 98. I did my first triathlon as a professional um, Ironman, Ironman Canada in mm. Penticton, British Columbia. And uh, I did that for seven years and, you know, I just scraped by, like I was, I had some sponsors. My biggest sponsor was a tofu sponsor. Cause I also became vegan around the same time to try and improve performance. And so I was sponsored by a tofu company, which is great. I had all the tofu I could eat I, <laughs> <laughs> at the time. I ate, ate a ton of tofu. Um, and they actually paid me a little bit, like a tiny amount, but enough to get by, like enough to, to pay rent in a shed <laughs> and like, and get by. So I could train all day long. It was great. Um, and I did that, like I say, for seven years and it was, it was a lot of fun, but, um, you know, and I, I never reached the, the top tier. I was, I was good enough to, to do that and like to not have to work a re regular job, which is really my goal. Um, but I never really broke through to, um, the upper echelon. And what was um, the, what was the best year you had financially, if you don't mind me asking? In triathlon? Yeah. Um, probably made somewhere between like eight and $12,000. Holy shit. <laughs> I was living in a shed. I mean, the rent was $150 a month. Like wow. <laughs> it was, you gotta, you know, you gotta find ways to, to be lean. Um, and I did. Um, so it served its purpose, but, uh, it also ran its course. You know, I don't want to do that my whole life. I was at the time then, you know, my late twenties and, and hadn't, hadn't broken through. Like I say, I was, I felt, to be honest, I was a better athlete than my results ever showed. My training always impressed me more than my races. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think there's a few reasons for that. One, I don't think I ever got tapering perfectly right. Some folks are, are really good at that. I, I don't think I ever really nailed that. Um, did you have a coach or was this all kind of self-study? You know, I had a coach in the early days, but then it was, it was just my, my own. I had a track coach. You probably couldn't school. really afford one. Well, no, I'm <laughs> absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I felt, you know, I knew myself pretty well, but that's the thing that kept triathlon interesting too, is there's no template. Like to a degree you can, you know, you can look at where you've 
had a good race or a good workout and work backwards. You look at your training log and there sort of is, but it's not going to be identical because there's so many variables. Like it's just, I mean, you know, you know how it is as an athlete, right? I mean, there's so many things that, um, can determine how you're going to perform regardless of, of just fitness. Like to me in my perfect situation, if it came down to fitness, I felt I would have done really well. Cause I, I my cardio system was, was really strong and you know, everything was really good. Like I was fit, but sometimes to be honest, I don't think I was the smartest racer or even trainer. Like I just, I, I got obsessed with volume. I just packed in as much training as I could. In the early days, you need that. You need to build a base, but then you got to refine it. You got to be smarter. Like what got you here is not going to get you there. And I think I, I suffered a little bit from that. And then, you know, I had a roommate for a while, um, in the late nineties and we're still great friends. Um, but he went on and had a really successful career as a triathlete. He won a gold medal in Sydney, um, went to four Olympics, uh, won a bronze or a silver medal in, in Beijing. And he was very smart. Like he approached it as a business. It was like, you know, energy out, you got to get a fitness return. It was like, it was very calculated. And I started adopting more of that. Um, but also just as a racer, like he, you know, he knew the goals to get the finish line as quickly as possible, not to pack as much volume of training in as you could necessarily. Whereas I sort of just became obsessed with the training and trained more than anyone. Like I, I could crush anyone in training, Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. you know, that's, that's sort of the opposite of what you're trying to do. Right. Cause if, if your training doesn't lead to you getting to the finish line more quickly, then why are you spending the energy and, and the effort and, and the time? And, but for me, I knew it was because it was fun. I enjoyed it too much. Which <laughs> is why you still do it, right? Recreationally right. and you still, how much, how much of your, t your free time are you spending out on the trails and stuff right now? Like I, I do something every day. I'll bike or run. There's this loop I do in, in Malibu. I do it weekly, um, a 16 mile run called Bulldog. Um, and, you know, I, I run most days. And if I'm not running, I'm biking or doing gym stuff. And so, yeah, exactly. I, I still love it. And a lot of people back then who were top tier, they've retired now. Like, you know, yeah. and they're just like, they don't do anything or they just like very recreationally. But I still love it as much as I did from day one. And that's why I started it. Not to prove anything, not to try and be anything, but just because I enjoyed it. And I still do. There's a, a huge nugget there that I don't want people to miss because uh, whether it's triathlons or hockey or whatever the sport is, so many people go in and they do have success. They play in the NHL. And then when that career's over, they retire and they never put the skates on again or they, they have this relationship with training with uh, for uh, a triathlon and Ironman. And there's like, I don't ever want to do that again, where you never lost that. Now you maybe weren't tapping into the intuitive sense that, okay, this is what I need to do to be successful within the race. But as you found out, you know, it probably feels really good to realize like, Oh, I just loved to do it. I just had fun doing it. And I think so many people lose this. So many people I went through this experience as a, you know, a strength and conditioning training athlete where I did it for a number of years, goal oriented, like, what do I want to do? And just so focused on the output and not tapping into, is this really bringing me joy? And so recently over the really quite recently, probably in the last three or four months, I just have fun out there. And I, you know, in our, in our gym here. 
and I have a group of guys that come over and we enjoy being together. We work hard, but sometimes when you don't really want to work hard, you just want to be out there. You just kind of, you know, you're, you're dialing it back a little bit, but there's not that sense that I need to, I need to get somewhere. You're already there. And I feel I'm, I'm sensing that that's how you're just like, I'm already here. I'm just doing the thing I love. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And and that's something too, that, you know, it's funny when people find out about the Ironman triathlon, they would say, huh, you know, like, how do you, how do you push yourself so hard? And like push myself. I don't push myself. I just enjoy it. Like, I just like, to me, it's easier to do than to sit around. Like to me, to go for a run is easier than to not go for a run. Cause I like it and I don't push myself. And maybe that's why I never reached the top tier, but I enjoyed, I'm 45. I, you know, I started when I was 15 and I enjoyed as much as I did on day one. I still feel like a kid every day when I go out for a run. Dude, that is so rare. It's so rare. And I think especially in that category of fitness, it's like, yeah, how do you get up every day to do that? And it's no, you don't have to, you shouldn't have to. How many things in our life do we get that have to do this? And you're just following your heart. And it brings to mind, we were talking about our, our mutual friend, Lance Armstrong, before we got on in when he and I sat down in this room to have a podcast, what, what really sparked this new energy for Lance was him looking at the bike differently. He had had so much anger, sadness, all these different emotions wrapped up in the bike because of what he had gone through, you know, a lot of it self-inflicted, but he was wanting to move on from it. And his, his way was to push the bike away. And I think as we learn more about these things, the more we push things away, the more they stay in our life in a way that it doesn't feel good. And when he finally one day said, I just, I just like being on the bike. And he got back on the bike and all these opportunities started to, come about the podcast took off and then he did the tour de france podcast and now as as we both know he does next ventures which uses the podcast as a way through this flywheel of creating awareness around the products that he loves and so he gets to show up authentically like yeah i invested in this but it's because i love the product i don't mean the returns are important and the projections and all that but it starts with is this something that i love and I, I love the parallels that you actually never got to that point where you're like, I don't, or I'm assuming you didn't. You just were always tapped into like, I just love doing this. For sure. And, and I completely agree with what you said. Because willpower is actually finite. Like it's, you only have so much. He has like a reservoir of willpower. And when there's hard things you got to do in life and business and whatever, you want that to be full. You don't want to be depleting that to go in a workout. Like if you are, do you, like should maybe you need to find different exercise. Like not everyone loves running. So my advice to them, don't run, find something you love to do, play tennis, play basketball, whatever it is, but do something that you love and you get excited about and don't burn your willpower to do that because you're going to need it for something that actually really matters in life. And to me, it re- restocks my reservoir of willpower. Um, so for me, it's perfectly complementary. It's not balance, it's synergy. And there's a big difference. A lot of people don't realize like, balance, you know, for one thing to go up, another has to go down. That's not true with this. It's like when I work out in the morning, it's probably like with you. Sure. It takes an hour or however long, but you get that time back later in the day through efficiency, productivity, focus, all those things that it brings. So it complements life for sure, as opposed to 
being balanced. Like, I don't like that word balance unless it's used in context, but so often not. Yeah. And I, well, I, I've never thought about it as a, uh, willpower having a certain reserve. And I, that re- really resonates with me because you are, if you're grinding in every area of your day, you're tapped out at a certain point and generally it's going to be pretty early. But if you can build up these reservoirs when you need to really grind on something at work or, you know, wh- wherever it may be, you have this full reservoir that you can tap into because you didn't burn it out grinding through a 15 mile run that you didn't really want to do, but I should do it because it's going to make me feel better at the end. And this is where I get my energy. A lot of people do that, right? I've done that. This is where I get my energy for the day. It's like, whoa, let's start the day with good energy. And how do you do that? Well, how did you sleep last night? Have you been drinking water? What are you eating? Like what kind of stress levels? And that's a whole nother podcast, but I, I love just the simplicity of what you're sharing and you're kind of living proof of it, right? Well, and just knowing expenditure and return and everything, everything you do is expend and what do you get in return for that? So efficiencies, finding efficiencies like, hey, I'm giving up time and effort and energy, but what am I getting back? And so just thinking about things that way too. And you know, that's, that's the way a good athlete approaches training, right? You're not going to just go and do stuff for no reason. It's very specific. And as you get fitter and fitter and better, your training needs to be more specific. Like if you're, you know, someone who's never done any exercise, doing jumping jacks is going to make you a better cyclist. If you're top level cyclist, it's just going to take energy away and not return anything. So you got to be specific to doing stuff on the bike. So this is an example there, but just being very mindful, being very purposeful of what it is you're, you're trying to achieve and then working backwards from there. Perfect. So in the span of this, this, um, professional Ironman career, Vega was born. How the hell did that happen? Yeah. So in, um, 2003, I was feeling pretty burnt out. I was, I was probably overtraining. Um, (laughs) clearly you were, if you were out training everybody else. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I was, and it was, and, and I had the symptoms, so I had, um, you know, I wasn't sleeping that well. I was actually gaining a bit of weight even, and yeah. I'll talk more about that in a second, but cortisol levels were super high, which I didn't know at the time. So I had a hormonal injury, um, like just cortisol. It was just, it was just too high. So um, sugar cravings, starch cravings, being dependent on, on caffeine, stimulants, things like that, um, and sugar, um, getting really hungry late at night, even though I'd eaten a lot throughout the day, all these, these symptoms of, of high cortisol. So it was funny. I was listening to the radio. It was actually, a, you know, was, I would go from living in a shed in Victoria, British Columbia with a bunch of roommates um, to back home, you know, my mom's house in North Vancouver. And, and I was at, at her place and she was listening to this radio show. Um, this guy came on and he was just talking about, he was talking about Maca, um, M-A-C-A, you know, Maca, some people yeah. pronounce it, but um, it had, the guy on there had just started a company that was importing it from Peru into Canada. First one, no one had ever done that. And this is 2003. And he described all the symptoms that I had. I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. And he said, if you start having this, it's an adaptogen, so it'll reduce cortisol and these symptoms will go away. You'll treat it with the cause. You don't have to treat the symptom anymore, like with caffeine and things like that. So I'm like, wow, that's interesting. <laughs> so I got some of this stuff, started putting it in my blender drink and it actually worked after, it was an instant, but it was maybe four to six weeks you know, that started clearing up and, and I contacted the guy, you know, this is, let's say 2003. 
um, found out he lived 15 minutes away from me, invited me over to his house. And I, I'm like, Hey, you know, I do triathlon. Would you sponsor me? And he's like, Oh, well, I'm just a brand new company. I'm selling stuff out of my garage. Can't really, you know, sponsor you, but, uh, you know, let's, you know, let's just talk and, and, uh, get to know each other. So we did, I went over there, hung out, we probably hung out for six hours. We just hit it off right away. And, um, his name's Charles Chang. We became friends and at the end of our six hour conversation, we decided to take a replica of my blender drink that I'd been making for myself for years mm. and add the maca that he had just started importing and make a commercial version. And, um, and then a year later, Vega came out. That was that. So, and that was a, uh, a prepackaged drink? Right. So, yep. Powder and that, form. So that's how it started. Wait, so say that again? Yep. Powder form. So we had, um, we started off with um, a bottle of, of powder. So yeah. It was $75 for 15 servings. And it tasted horrible. And um, it, was, it was hard to convince people that their life would get better if they drank this horrible tasting expensive thing. But um, I went around, gave all these talks at uh, little health food stores in Canada. And if people tried it, they, they rebought it because it did work. Like the symptoms went away that I talked about because the cause was being treated and it was just really good. And I actually wrote a book that outlined why this worked. I talked about hormonal stress a lot and, and it was 80 pages, really short book, but self-published. And I would just go to these, these stores and, you know, get like 10, 12, four people showing up. And, um, but then if they tried Vega, they bought it. And like I say, it worked and they rebought it. And that's, that's how we grew it is, um, education. Like part of the company was education, um, huge part of it. Um, we would, we would say that was the why the Vega was the how kind of thing. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, neither Charles or myself had, had been in the industry at all. Like, I, I mean, I knew nothing about anything. I did triathlon right out of high school. Didn't go to college. Um, I dabbled in it. I took forensic anthropology for one, <laughs> like for, for one semester to just tell my mom I was doing something, but, um, it was actually really interesting forensic anthropology, but that's a whole other thing. But then, yeah, just did, did triathlon and Charles had, he had worked at a, a box, a cardboard box making company, right? Like no background. He's like, oh, these supplement. Dude. manufacturers keep ordering boxes that's interesting so super smart like learned all about the supplement industry and then started importing maca like i said and then then we met and and um collaborated all right so i want to get a little bit more granular with that six hour meeting to when you actually sold it like give us a few details from from point a to point b and you sold it you said in 2015 so 11 years in okay. uh, we sold it and yeah, you know, it, it's, it's probably what you would expect. I mean, it was a grind and it was kind of a perfect storm for me because I'd come from triathlon or is better mentality. You know, again, like going back to that volume, like I was such a volume guy, like I'm going to train all day long. And I did like literally all day long, like eight hour bike ride, two hour run, like, you know, like all day. Yeah. And uh, so that, that was the approach I took to, to trying to build this with Charles and Charles was, um, you know, at a young family. Uh, he, he was all in, put all his money in, you know, sold his truck, like took money, pulled money out from his mortgage. Like he was all in no safety net, no plan B. And I love that. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's, this is the sort of guy I want to work with. So I, I had to commit. I was like, okay, well, am I going to dabble? This guy's all in. I'm his partner. I got to be all in. I stopped doing triathlon. I was going to try and do both and there's no way it just, nope. just couldn't be done. Uh, I would do both things really, really badly. So I committed. I was like, yep, I'm all in. Um, you know, this guy's believed in me. We, you know, we're a team. We got to, you know, we got to 
gotta be all in here. So, um, yeah. Uh, and again, like having that, that more is better mentality. And if it's hard, you're probably getting something out of it. So it was like kind of strange, but I would go out on the road to, to give these, these talks and the harder it was that the worse the audience was <laughs> like the, the, the more it got me fired up because I'm like, yeah, this is doing something like this is, this is like, I'm growing here. I'm improving. I'm getting better. And, and I started off, I'd never given a talk before. And I, and I wrote a book. I'd never written a book before. I like, I had English in high school. I didn't know what to, how to write a book. And yeah. Charles is like, look, like if you want to use hemp protein, pea protein, rice protein in this thing, no one's ever heard of that. There's no market. Like there is no market for this. There's a market for the result of this, which is feeling better, but there's not a market for the product. Yeah. So we got to convince people of the benefits of this and help them understand that this is a bridge to what they actually want. So that we got to have an education program. That's you. That's all you. Like, and it's got to be write simple. Exactly. So you're right. 80 pages. It's got to be, it can't be really uh, technical and dry you've got it's got to be something that really hits home for people yeah it's got to be conversational and it's just got to be approachable obviously and aspirational but not overly aspirational yes. like it's it's a very mm. fine line there and and i think we found it pretty well um partly by chance but you know we did we did put some thought what into was the it name well. of the book thrive okay yeah and sure. then thrive um it, it actually did quite well. And then I expanded it and it was published by Penguin um, in 2007. Bam. So, and then, and then I did some follow-ups. I did a fitness one and I did a, um, an environmental one around food issues, which I, I learned more about uh, later on down the road. But um, yeah, it was really, you know, that, that was a grind. That was, you know, Charles was CEO. He ran the company. He was in the office when we had an office that was in his basement or it started off obviously in his basement, but he, he ran the day-to-day. And I was out on the road giving these talks and uh, spreading the word. So, yeah. What was the first big break where you're just like, ooh, shit, we may have something here? You know, it was very, it was very slow. But like I say, because it worked, once it started to go, it went. So it was cash flowing fine. You're like, we can make a living off. This is cool, great worth yeah. your time type of thing it it was like we never thought we would get out of canada with it we thought we'd be in canadian health food stores and it would just be like you know we never thought selling or anything like that it was just we thought it was just a cool thing to do kind of new and fun and i was learning a ton and um i i enjoyed the new challenges and i also enjoyed because triathlon i'd done for so long and you know how it is when you are proficient at something you have to put so much work in to have a tiny incremental improvement or something that you're terrible at, like public speaking, writing a book, um, you know, talking to, you know, media or whatever, right? Yeah. Like you get better pretty quick. So it was rewarding because the improvements were leaps and bounds as opposed to tiny, tiny little bits. So that was just fresh. It was new. And, and then I think, you know, our first kind of big break was because as you may know, Whole Foods is divided into regions and a new one just came to, to Vancouver. It was just brand new in Canada and, and one open there. What year was this? Um, maybe 2006, something like that. And someone there uh, gave it a chance and brought it into that one store. And so we're like, okay, we got to crush this. So we did demos. We're in there all the time, like making sure it sold really, really well in that store. Good for you. Then that person was transferred to the Chi- one in Chicago. And so yeah, my hometown. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I spent a lot of time there. Like it was great. So that, that was our bridge to the U S is this, this 
Whole Foods employee was transferred to one in, in Chicago. And she said, oh, you got to bring in this thing, Vega. It's, it's great. They just crush it. And they're like, oh, I've never heard of this. And Is so, she still getting Christmas cards from you, I hope? <laughs> um, Might actually, have to get her back. You probably yeah, don't send out Christmas cards. No, but yeah. No, we got to look her up, actually. Yes, you do. <laughs> oh, my God. The linchpin. But isn't that funny? Just like how one little thing like that. And so, yeah. So then, then I went to Chicago. and like, okay, we got to do the same thing. we got to replicate this here. and. We did, and it went really well. And then we made a big mistake. Other Whole Foods regions are like, "Are you kidding me? This stuff is crushing it in in this this store in Chicago. We got to bring it everywhere." So we got everywhere in the U.S. and we're like, "We've made it. We're done." Yeah, mistake because <laughs> we didn't have the resources to because it's so high touch. So much education needs to go into this at the time, right? Keep in mind this is before plant based. This is 2005, right? Oh, yeah. So plant based is like this fringe thing. So it, we just didn't have the resources to go and, and it got on the shelf. It didn't get off. No one bought it. So it pulled back a bit and, you know, we lost money for a while in the States. We're like, do we just have to like say it doesn't work here? It's not a, it's a, it's a tragically supplements, like take it back to Canada. (laughs) Um, But, but then we, we focused again back on the, you know, the Chicago region and built it out there. And, uh, and then slowly, and, and we're very diligent. We, we say no a lot, which is so hard to do, right? Like you get, the, it's so hard to, but we said no and yes to regions where we felt we could have the education. It was just me. Like I was going around and doing this. So I would go like, you know, each Whole Foods, I would probably be in four times a year, like everyone in every state. <laughs> so it was constantly touring. Wow. And, and then that was it. You know, then it just started to, to swell and go. And then Costco came and, we learned our lesson. We said no. We said no five times to Costco. And then when they came back the sixth time, it was all on our terms because they wanted us. So we're like, we want huge case stacks. We want this. We want that. So we totally controlled it, the conversation. And that was year seven. And that's that when so our first investor them. came in. VMG was our first investor at year seven. And they, they coached us through some of that. Mm-hmm. And the power of no to this is just like, it's, it's amazing, but it's, it's the mistake a lot of new entrepreneurs make for obvious reasons, right? You just want to, you want to say, yes, you want to, you want to sell your product. So, but then we control that sales almost doubled when we went in Costco and then we sold the company 2011 or 2015, 11 years in, Damn. but yeah, it was a grind. I mean, 11 years of that. Um, but like I say, mentally it was, it was just a different type of Ironman and I, I was ready. Dude, that's so cool. And you shared with me that it's for sale. It is. Yep. It, um, so White Wave, uh, their, their big brand is Silk, as you may be familiar with. Oh, they, yeah. The, the, what is it? Like a kind of a drink. Uh, what is yeah, it? Yeah, there's like soy milk and almond milk, milk and yeah. uh, oat milk now. But they, so, so White Wave owns Silk. And Silk's huge. It's in a third of U.S. households, over 100 million. Like, great product. And then they were acquired by Danone big French company. Um, and you know, it's different. It's, it's very, very different. Um, very corporate. It's, you know, quarterly, like you got, if you spend money this quarter, you got to see a return this quarter, which doesn't work for our product. I mean, it's about building a team and a tribe and, you know, education around that. And also it's a brand, like it's, it stands for something as a set of values, like Silk's a great product, but I would argue it's not a great brand. You don't join a Silk running club. You don't get excited about Silk. Again, great product, not great brand, different. 
and like great brands out there, like, you know, in our industry, like Cliff Bar or, and Quest Bar is not something that I would eat, but the dairy in it, but as a brand, it's very strong because they know who the consumer is. They know who they are. And Cliff and Quest, for example, are very, very different. And there's no crossover. Not like Cliff Bar would never use sugar alcohols to lower carb content. And uh, Quest would never do a, like a high carb energy bar, whereas <laughs> that's what Cliff is. So they know who they are. They know who their consumer is. And so few brands, like so many will go and try and reach over and, and grab from someone else. And those two brands haven't, and I admire that um, with both of them, just using that as an example. But that happens a lot. And now with Vega, you know, and, and these other companies in the space, there's a lot of crossover and a lot of like me too. And like, oh, you're doing this. I'm going to do that. And Vega's DNA is innovation and solving problems. Some people don't even know they have and, and doing things that are different, but not for the sake of difference, for the sake of solving a problem. And that's the way we built Vega is to, to solve a problem environmentally in food production, but also obviously in health and performance. And when you start doing me too, like this, and this just kills me too, like, you know, now they'll talk about, I don't know if I should be saying this stuff or not, but it's just like one of those <laughs> things is so ridiculous. Like they'll actually say that the innovation team, they're like, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're researching trends and seeing what's hot. And I'm like, that's not innovation. That's call yourself the, the copying team or the me too team, just for the sake of the English language. Don't say that's innovation. Like just use the word innovation correctly. You're not the innovation team. You're the me too team. Like yes. if, if you're okay with that, fine. we might need to find a new term than me too. That's been, that's been kind of co-opted oh, yeah. by I suppose that's, a movement. That one's um, nice. But yeah, yeah I hear what now. you're saying. That's, that's not following like, what do we need to change here to make this? It's like, what, what is needed? What are they doing? And it, it's again, yeah, so it's like looking over to everyone else. And it's like, that's not Vega DNA. The Vega brand is to come up with solutions through nutrition for problems and explain how it's going to work so that you try it. And then when you do, it works and you keep buying it. That is what Vega is. It's synergistic ingredients. It all makes sense. You can explain every ingredient. You don't just randomly throw in a bunch of ingredients. So now, of course, you know, they just try and find what's hot and what's popular. And, um, you know, it's, and then it's just, it's just, it's watered down. It's not, not a strong brand anymore. If you start doing that, I'm not saying that Vega has gone down that road too far, sure. but it's in danger of that. Um, as any brand is when it grows because they just, they, they just like, Oh, what's the hottest category? Let's do that. Let's do that. It's like, no, and it's like with, I mean, Beyond Meat wouldn't exist if, if they did focus groups. Tesla wouldn't. Like, I mean, for the Cybertruck, like, you know, yeah. you've probably seen that interview with yeah. Elon. It's like, focus group. What do you, like, people can't even comprehend this thing. And it was like with, um, you know, an iPod as well. Like, people would say they want, they want a CD. They wanted one that would hold several CDs, so there's a longer playlist. They wanted one that batteries wouldn't wear out. They wanted one that's smaller and didn't skip. But they couldn't even comprehend an MP3 player. Right. That's that's up to the innovators. Right. So it's not up to the consumer to to know what he or she wants. That's that's up to the people making the products to solve yes. the problems. That's why they're doing it. That's why they have that position. It's following that like that Vega North Star. Like this is what we do. Like let's play from that energy in that perspective. And that's that's when you do innovate because yeah. you're 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 tapped into that kind of DNA. I but love that's, that. That's just what kills me though. Like, and again, just, yeah, well, just how for does the that... sake of the English language, like don't call yourself the innovation team. Like, like, and they don't even see any, anything wrong with that. Like, in a, like just look the word up, like don't, 
Don't refer to yourself as innovation. Well, it sounds great. Yeah, it does. It sounds great. How does it feel for you when you see it going off course? You know, this is, you know, you, you're one of the guys, the two guys behind it. Like, does it, are you, have you been able to separate from that? Does it still feel like this is my baby and they're kind of, they're, they're fumbling it here. Like what, like what, what, what comes up for you? Well, for me, you know, we, we took a lot of chance. We took a big risk um, on plants and plant-based nutrition going to where it was. Not that we thought it would necessarily go here, but because we wanted it to. Like I, I you know, I'm not a business person. I didn't see a market. I, I saw, you know, using a business and using capitalism in general as a way to further an agenda. And sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, this time it worked, but now we're in this place with, you know, like game changers and all these books and people really understanding the value of plant-based environmentally, personal health, all, all these things, whatever it is. And I, I really feel that we help pave the road. You know, we, we put a lot of resource, a lot of time, a lot of effort into, into that in the early days and took a big risk. And I now barriers of entry are very low and there's a lot of new products and some of them are really good and good for them for putting them out there. The more good plant, based products out there, the, the better and the happier I am. But I just want to make sure that we, you know, we, we benefit from that as well. This world that we have helped in, in part create, you know, we should benefit. Yeah. And, and we are, but I just don't want to see it, it, it fade away. Let's take us to current times. One-on-one cider house pulp culture. That's how you and I connected. Yep. We spoke, I feel like it was back in March or April or May. And I had tried, I hadn't even tried the product. I was visiting LA in February of 2020. And our friend John Beer had, before it had come onto the market, I believe he had some, some pulp culture and he had just finished the can and we were out at dinner. I'm like, Right now, if you're watching on the stream here, right here, I've got the love uh, version, which has pineapple, pomegranate, maca. There we go. Damiana, which my wife loves, Damiana, and uh, cordyceps. So I saw the can. I was like, dude, that looks amazing. Tell me about it. He goes, dude, it's like healthy alcohol. And at that point, like I wasn't, I'm not unlike you, I wasn't drinking. Like I don't drink alcohol right now. And I'm like, but that's interesting. He's like, yeah, no hangover. There's no sugar. The da, 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 da. I'm like, dude, that looks so cool. Like, wow. And then I pinged him when I got home. I'm like, what's up with this thing? I know that you guys are doing some PR for it. You've invested. Like, I'm interested. Can you kind of make an intro? And so he introduced me to you and your, your partner, Mark McTavish. And we kind of took it from there. Um, and so I've since invested and loved the product and have, have tried to do my part to evangelize it, which is easy because I love it and I believe in it, but I would love to hear your story, how you came into the fold. Yeah. Well, you know, back, um, back in my twenties, you know, I, I drank a bit, never, never a big drinker, but, um, when I started training a ton and, um, and then, and then even beyond that, like with Vega and all that, I didn't drink at all. Because I was like, oh, I just don't, you know, I just don't really feel great. I got to be focused. I got to be sharp. I just, I just can't afford 
any downtime. Like, I, I just don't, I don't need this. So I just, I'm like, okay, I just sort of put that out of my life. Um, it's like, that's not part of my life anymore. And I hadn't drank in 14 years. And then I was at, I live in Venice. So I was at the, the local Whole Foods in Venice. And I saw this one day, I don't know, it just caught my eye. I was walking by one-on-one cider, white can, scrumpy, picked it up, looked at it, one ingredient, apples. I'm like, how is it app? Like zero sugar, probiotics, <laughs> all these organic acids and as one ingredient. Like, how does that make sense? So I emailed, I've never done this before. Email info at 101sider.com. I'm like, hey, this is interesting. What, what's up with this? So Mark, who <laughs> responds 20 minutes later, he's like, oh man, I'm from Canada as well. I love Vega. I'm in this, you know, I was in the, the industry, the sports industry, fitness industry in Canada. Now I'm down here living in LA. And so we got together just like, you know, with Charles back in the day. Yeah. So Mark and I, again, hit it off. And, and I saw like very complimentary skill set. So I'm like, oh, this is great. He explained all about fermentation. Like you ferment sugar. Like it's just, you just let apple juice sit and it essentially goes bad. All the sugar gets eaten, zero sugar left. And that creates probiotics naturally. And I'm like, how bad can, like, I love fermented food. I love, you know, tempeh and sauerkraut, kimchi, really good for digestion, probiotics, all that. So I'm like fermented apples. How bad can this be? I drank it. Felt great. No hangover. Opposite of beer. It doesn't bloat you. It actually helps with digestion. Went and did a workout hour and a half later felt great. I'm mm. like, this is really interesting. You don't do that after a beer for sure. No. So I'm so I had some more. I'm like, this is great. I love this stuff. And so I said to Mark, like, I love what you're doing. Like this is this is amazing. It's so simple. I just love the elegance of the solution of just that like there are people in labs trying to create hangover pills. Like why don't you just drink like fermented juice? Oh, that's this so is amazing. Interesting. Yeah. So simple. And so I invested and, and like say we became friends and we, we hung out a lot and then together we created Pulp Culture, which is the base of 101 Cider, which is just fermented juice. And then we blend in adaptogens. So like the ones you read there, the ones here in Hustle, which are, you know, passion fruit, strawberry, ginger, turmeric, lion's mane. So super fruits with adaptogens. It was just a matter of really being simple with that. And again, intentional, like looking through and finding, um, just a better way to do it. And, and the result was so good. I just, I just felt great. I now, you know, drink this regularly and it's just part of my routine and I, I feel, I feel really good. And so again, I just thought there's a big opportunity there because people as myself don't realize this and they're drinking, you know, like obviously hard seltzers blown up because it's zero sugar. And, but it's malt liquor, you know, it's not, it is good the for you. dirtiest. Oh, in the process of making that, like we want transparency. Like anyone who wants to come into our place in LA, we will show you, we'll host you. We'll show you where we make this. Just these big tanks of juice that ferment and then blending it in with adaptogens. It's that simple. Putting it in a can, um, which is shelf stable because all the sugar has been eaten. So from a business perspective too, not having to, um, to, to cool this either, like environmentally, that's great. Like you don't spend cost or, or energy cooling the can to, to send it out. Whereas you do with obviously hard kombucha or anything like that. And to make this, it's so efficient. We did an environmental, um, report and it's obviously apples come from trees, trees sequester carbon. It's the only alcohol crop made from trees. Everything else is, you know, it's, it's farmed, it's grains, like even kombucha, you got to grow sugar to feed to the SCOBY and that takes a lot of water. It takes land. Um, the apple trees, you don't even water them. They're dry farms. So the root system pulls up water from the ground. So no irrigation. The amount of water used in this production is, is so minimal. Um, so I just love the efficiencies of environmental 
um, water usage, resource usage, as well as just the, the outcome is so good. So there's an education piece that yeah. goes along with this, right? There this is. is in the, what they, what y'all call the better for you category. And so what, what, I mean, I guess that would be one of the hurdles, right? Like it's not something that people necessarily know about. They don't understand what you just shared. Um, what has that process been like for you guys? Well, we're just starting. I mean, we just launched Pulp Culture in June of last year, obviously during the pandemic. Um, we're fortunate in that we can ship direct to anyone in the U.S. because it's classified as wine because it's fermented juice, whereas beer and seltzer you can't ship across state lines and things. So that's been great. A part of the business has really, really grown. But it is, you know, it's very much similar playbook to Vega in that there is a big educational component. and. It's good because things like White Claw and Hard Seltzer really do help because people are starting to think better for you, like no sugar and like, I just, I want something that's better. And this is actually, not only is it not bad for you, this is actually good for you. So it's, it's, it's what's next. It's that next step. And, and I really believe that this is, for all the reasons I talked about, the next big thing in, in beverage, not just necessarily alcohol. Like we don't even refer to this as an alcoholic beverage. We f- refer to it as a fermented beverage. And one of the outcomes of fermentation, of course, is alcohol, but so are B vitamins, organic acids, probiotics, all these good things that you want. So full spectrum is what we call that, which is something that we actually own that trademark um, in, in the industry, just meaning the full outcome. So it's like matcha, for example, you drink matcha, it has all the cofactors. If you just drink, like, or if you took caffeine pills, that's going to get you super wired. But if you have matcha, it's not because of the cofactors that are around that. It's it's like even in, in South America, you know, like a kid sitting on the street chewing on a coca leaf, totally big smile on his face, totally good. But now if you extract you know, cocaine from that and do that, not so good. It needs the cofactors. It has to have the whole um, element there, which this does. And another alcohol doesn't. It's, you know, it's distilled or it's brewed. It's just, it's alcohol um, that is then, you know, mixed in with like, you know, malt liquor, blended with sparkling water, for example, is what hard seltzer is. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, by the way, uh, I believe there is a coupon code. I want to say it's 15% off. Don't hold me to that, but for unlearn, go to, um, either one of the websites, right? Pulp culture or one-on-one cider house. Yeah. One-on-one actually. It's, yeah. One-on-one cider.com or pulpculture.la. Be sure to order some. Now, I'm curious. You came out of Vega. You got involved here. What were some of the things that came up that you were just like, oh, I didn't see that coming? Like, what were some of the real challenges as you and Mark started to work on this thing together? Well, the pandemic, of course, being a big one in that, you know, serving in restaurants and bars basically gone. Um, but then the flip side of that, the direct consumer, really, really strong, grown really well. And we're still, you know, so early too that we, we haven't really met any serious challenges yet. And we've built out our facility. That's the thing too that, that we did differently and that a lot of beverage companies, they, they co-pack. So they hire someone else to do the, the manufacturing and packing, which of course is far less money up front. Um, and they can then use the money they have raised for selling and marketing, but their margins are low. So we did it the other way around. We built out the facility 
So we own all that. We own the canning line, all the production. So our margins are amazing. So building that out and then going and using the money for education, for marketing, um, that's next. So we just, we flipped it a little bit that way. And I, I'm more comfortable that way because you just, you want to own the whole facility. Like you want to, you want to know what's going on. You want to be able to walk into a production facility and see everything that's happening. Um, you need that level, as far as I'm concerned, control um, when you're, when you're starting a new company, like you got to be so hands-on. You just can't, you can't put it in other people's hands. Mm, mm, I feel that. And you're in, obviously you're in California, you're in Texas now. Where, what other states are you in? What's kind of, you know, around the corner? So yeah, we really have um, very much a, a city strategy. So Austin being, we believe will, will be a real hub. Um, of course, you know, Los Angeles or San Francisco and then, Austin, we're also um, Nashville, working on Nashville. Right. Um, of course, New York, but there's, you know, issues around that a little bit with, uh, with the pandemic. Um, yeah, and then we'll be in places like, um, you know, Boulder and Denver, of course, and Colorado, I think will be very strong there. I think Portland and Seattle, very strong. Um, you know, probably Boston, Chicago. You know, cities that are craftier, as Mark says, like ones that are, already understand like the the small brew and craft craft beer for example a craft beer drinker i think would would really appreciate the sour cider that is 101 cider house whereas pulp culture and 101 that competes more or pulp culture competes more with um like hard kombucha hard seltzer things like that um so just depending on where where there's already an understanding of that like we wouldn't take pulp culture to a place where they they, they haven't even got, got to seltzer yet, you know, and they're still in ah, like Bud okay. Light or like, you know, like the, the, the big beer companies, you know, for, it goes big beer, then it goes like craftier beer, then it goes like, you know, hard seltzer and then, and then kombucha and then, and then, um, all culture. So we, we wouldn't want to go somewhere, um, where there's just zero understanding of what it is we're doing. Yeah, because you still need to lay your own education piece on it. You can't, you can't have such remediation where you're starting from ground zero. Yeah, and it's just, why do all this heavy lifting if, if you just don't need to by being smarter about it? And where, where are people going to uh, find it when they go to Whole Foods? What section? You know, because I was looking the other day, the Whole Foods I was in didn't have it, but I was trying to figure out, okay, where am I going to find this? So 101 is with... Um, other ciders and um, and craft beer, and pulp culture is with hard seltzer and hard kombucha. Usually in a separate spot. Like in Venice, there's a whole separate case for that. Okay, and then, okay, so you're here right now um, for this launch party yeah. later today that we're going to go to, which is awesome. And um, what's this? Like, how many stores are, are you coming into here in Austin? And then what's the strategy when you get into a Whole Foods or around education there? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a good question because right now with can't do demos. Um, I was going to say, yeah. is it hard? To, can you do demos? You can do demos with alcohol, but you just can't do demos right now. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so that will be a bit of a challenge. Mark and I are working on, I mean, everyone has to work on it, right? We're all in the same boat, obviously. So not like we're at any type of disadvantage, but, um, yeah, it will be really working with like tonight, for example, a lot of folks coming are 
you know, well-known in the, the scene in Austin and the health scene, the, the fitness, the, the performance scene. So the hope is, you know, they can try it, they'll like it, they'll talk about it and just kind of get things going that way. Um, as opposed to, and now of course, social media, we didn't, we didn't have that when we started Vega, you know, there was, there was no social media, None. which is, it's hard to even imagine now, but there, there are other ways to do things. Of course, um, social media is very easy and, um, relied upon a lot, but, um, you know, there's more ways to do it. And just into the whole foods here in Austin. Um, I believe it's a few others as well. So we have a distributor ambiente, I believe, um, this is more Mark's Mark's part of the, the business, but, um, yeah, we, we have a, he's, he's super excited about them. Um, I believe they'll be there tonight. We can meet them. Um, and, uh, and, and apparently, yeah, they're really good and are going to, you know, work very closely with us in Austin. Awesome. And so what, what are your, what do you feel like the path to, well, first of all, what would you consider a success for, for this? And what do you feel like the steps are necessary to get there? I think it's people trying it. And because we, we say too that it's like the, the four can challenge. Like some people don't like it right away. It's like where kombucha was 10 years ago. A lot of people would drink it like, oh, that's like vinegar. I don't like this. And they're like, okay. After, you know, their second bottle, they're like, oh, it's all right. And then they drink it every day. It There's... There's an acquired taste, but then when it flips, it flips. And it doesn't take long to flip. It's like, like we say, four cans, like buy a four pack and drink that. It doesn't have to be all at once, but your, your palate actually changes because it is sour. There's no sugar. So you pick up different notes, um, which is really interesting. And the more refined your palate becomes, the, the more nuance you, you get out of it. And what we found too, some people have even said that it, it helps them not want sugar as much throughout the rest of the day. So they just stop craving sugar because their, their palate's evolving and, and changing. So that's, that's quite interesting too. Ooh, that's super interesting. What are the biggest challenges you see ahead? I think just getting, getting people to try it, you know, that's the initial thing. Um, you know, production, we have no issue. Like we've built our ability, like I say, so we're good. We can produce. It's just having people, cause we know they, like with Vega, we know they want the outcome. We, they, they want what you can get, which is to be able to drink, but feel great and have no, no payback. You know, it's like, uh, just a zero consequence kind of thing. Yeah. Like, I mean, obviously you can't drive and stuff. You're still like still alcohol. You're still going to get, yeah, we'll drunk. be clear about that. <laughs> yeah. But you're not gonna, you know, you're not going to feel bad later in the day or the next day at all. Like zero, zero hangover, which is amazing. Um, and so a lot of people I know, like in the fitness industry and people who are very you know, conscious about what they drink, they'll often drink, you know, like vodka soda because it's low in calories and uh, zero sugar, but they still don't feel good the next day. So getting it out to those people, um, you know, fit plan is also one of our investors. I've also invested in, in them. So they have a great network of, uh, fitness folks. And those type of people, getting it out to them, getting it out to people who cut alcohol out because they feel that alcohol is bad, like, like me, you know, for 14 years, not realizing that not all alcohol is the same. Like if just, just cause something has alcohol in it doesn't mean that it was necessarily bad if it was produced, for example, like this through fermentation, cause you get all the cofactors. So yeah, education around that, helping people try it and just to see how they feel. So sampling, like getting it out there, sending it out to as many people as we can, 
and um, having them enjoy it and then hopefully talking about it and helping um, them feel better. And what about, is there like an influencer strategy? Because, you know, they're especially in this area, health, wellness, biohacking, all, you know, this big area, especially a lot of these folks with podcasts are very influential. When they say, hey, I'm into this, their, their audience <clears throat> listens and they, and they buy the stuff. It's very sticky. Absolutely. What- yeah, no, well, so we have a group of influencers we send it to. And we're always open for more. So if you're an influencer and you're listening <laughs> and you want to give it a try and you, you, you think you'd like it and you have folks in your life who you think would like it, we're happy to send it out. Yeah, perfect. All right, let's, let's switch gears to Game Changers. How did you become involved with the project? So Game Changers, yeah. It's well, film. actually, would you kind of lay it out <laughs> for people what Game Changers is? Yeah, so it's a film that is actually on Netflix now. It's... um. It's about uh, vegan athletes, essentially. And James Wilkes is the, um, the main character. He's also the producer. And he's a former UFC fighter who got injured and then tried a plant-based diet and, and found all the benefits of that and, uh, and sort of walks you through the film. And he started making this film, I think it was seven or eight years ago. Oh, shit. And he came to me. Um, I remember we did an interview. Um, it, it must have been eight years ago. And so he, it was just him, you know, and it was awesome. I, I love it. And he'd been using Vega, I assume. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it was just this raw, like, and I, lo- I love that. So people who, cause it reminded me kind of of how we started Vega. It's just like, I'm not, like, you know, he never made a film. He'd never like, you know, he showed up at my place with his little camera and these like <laughs> lights he got on Craigslist that were like super janky. And we did an interview and, um, and, and I, I loved it because the spirit and the mission, and again, it was just, it, it wasn't about him. You know, it was about the bigger picture of, of helping people. Like he felt this compulsion that, you know, he'd been lied to for so long that you, you know, you need to eat all his meat and dairy and all these things to be strong. And he found that wasn't the case and he felt way better not doing it. And he felt he wanted to, to share his experience. So I, I really admired that. And so of course, you know, offered to help however I could. Years went by, heard nothing. Like, Hey, you know, what's, what's going on with that film? And and, I, you know, I thought it's just, you know, he ran into funding issues, whatever it was. Like, I didn't know. Yeah, I mean, hard it's hard to, make to make, hard to make a film, hard right? A film, so yeah. any number of things could have happened. But what had actually happened is, so Louis um, Sahoya, I think that's how, I, how you pronounce his last name. Amazing guy, amazing director. He directed Cove, won an Academy Award. Mm. So I guess he, James somehow connected with him. And, and James, um, who's also his his partner in all this, uh, Joseph Pace is someone I've known since 97. So I, not to go down a rabbit hole here, but so I met him, uh, when I was swimming at the university of Victoria, living in a shed (laughs) and and, uh, on a telephone pole, he had posted something that said, Hey, I'm going to be talking about, I'm writing, you know, diet for a new America, that John Robbins book. He was writing the Canadian version with all Canadian stats. So he was giving a lecture at the University of Victoria in British Columbia. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go and check this guy out. So I talked with him after and we became friends. I was 97. Yeah. And we'd stayed, you know, stayed friends ever since. So then he and James connected totally independently and they were working on the film together. Anyways, so they got the, the film concept to Louis, who, like I say, won an Academy Award for The Cove. You know, amazing, great, great person um, and obviously very accomplished filmmaker so he's like 
look, I, I love this. This is great. This is so relevant. This is totally up my alley. Um, but you know, the footage you guys have just is not, it's just not up to par. It's just, you know, it's okay. But if I'm going to attach my name to it, this, this has to be better. We got to restart. We got to reshoot the whole thing. Um, but then when Louis came on, then, you know, opened the floodgates, right? James Cameron came on. I was going to say the, 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 can you share with people like some of the people attached to the, to the movie? Cause it's, it's quite a list. Right. Well, Louis was kind of the first big name. And then, um, cause the respect he has in the industry and then James Cameron, who's also mission aligned, he's vegan. He's also a Vega drinker. Um, and so he came on and then, I mean, you got James Cameron, I mean, come on, like, you know, the two biggest, most commercially successful films ever in history, Titanic and, or, um, and then Avatar. Avatar, yeah. yeah. So, um, and then of course Arnold came on because of, of James. Did I see Jackie Chan? Yeah, Jackie Chan and Lewis Hamilton, mm. um, Serena Williams. You know, really, just like you know, everyone at that point. Um, so, yeah. Then they reshot the whole film and um, and put it together. You know, it took took a long time. They they cut it all together at Skywalker Ranch. You know, George Lucas's ranch there. I went out there. It was awesome. It was just so cool. Louis uh, Louis had an office out there and walk through the whole thing. And uh, it was just, it was, it was awesome. Awesome experience. And so my, my role as one of the executive producers, along with James Cameron, Jackie Chan, Lewis Hamilton, all those people I mentioned, they have, they have a long list of executive producers, but um, it, it was a really great experience just to see how that all worked and that whole process. And then me just kind of speaking to, you know, some of my experience in, in the industry going, going back um, a, a few years. So and just giving thoughts on, you know, like, what do people ask me and things like that? Um, just helping them how I could. Very general help. Um, but then, it, yeah, it came together. It, it came out at Sundance. Um, I guess it was 2019. For me, it was 2018. But it launched at Sundance, so we're there for that. And then it went for about a year before it was shown in theater. So their big thing, because they could have sold it to Netflix or really to anyone, but as an activist film, you got to be pretty careful with stuff like that. You don't want to give exclusives because they could, they could take it down. And in the contract, they would then have still own it, Netflix, for example, and could then make it so no one else could see it because if they don't play it, then no one can, if it, you know, and they're like, we can't do this. Right. They would I never paid. thought of that. Yeah. You buy it to bury it. Exactly. So that, that, you know, and, and it's, it's a sensitive topic, you know, it's something that yep. there's, there's opposition to. So they're like, no, we can't have someone else controlling that. So it is on Netflix, but it's not a Netflix exclusive for that reason. And, you know, it's the sort of thing, like, I don't know that it will make money. It's successful. It's popular, but, um, you know, and that's what Louis said in the beginning too. It's, it's very, very difficult to make, make money from a documentary, but if that's not your goal, then, hey, it's amazing. Like, it's a great platform. And that's, that's not their goal. It wasn't to make money. It was to, to make a really great film and get it to as many people as possible. And that's what they've done. So, um, you know, I, I have a huge amount of admiration for, for the mission and, uh, and the way they went about that and really turning down some, some, you know, pretty decent offers. But again, it could have been buried and, and they resisted all that. So, you know, it was very good. Awesome. And, and to be fair, I haven't seen it yet, as I was sharing with you before we got on. Um, but it's funny. I did a little Google search and, um, it was like, uh, game changers. And then it's like, you know, the auto populates debunked. And so I just click on it. Yeah. 
and I see all the, you know, the fact checkers, which <clears throat> maybe not too long ago, I actually would have believed some of them. But now in what I've seen with the censorship, yeah. I don't believe any fact checkers because they're all full of shit. They're all tied to whomever. So have, have your way with it. People, I didn't click on any of them to see what they were actually saying because I wasn't really interested. I'm curious, you know, more to have the conversation with you. I personally uh, am in somewhat of, I would say, a in between a carnivore and a keto diet right now. And for me, I've, I've, I've always eaten meat. Um, I have gone periods where I've really uh, turned down the volume on the protein. But obviously with carnivores, it's, it's all protein. Now, I personally have had, had felt really good. I've had, I would say, anecdotally really good results. My blood work all seems fine. Um, so I guess what I want to, my question is, like, what do you say to people who say, well, I, well, I do carnivore? And now I'm not saying it with that tone, right? For yeah. me, what I've learned through all my experiences, I've tried a bunch of different things. For me, I have to experience it to understand it. And so I haven't gone vegan. I don't actually know what it would do to my body. I've heard what it's done to other people's bodies who eat carnivore now, right? But I've also heard what it's done for people like yourself who've done it for a long time. And for me, so I'll get to the, to, I'll, I'll allow you to answer the question, what do you say uh, to those people? Because uh, I'm sure there are plenty who want to challenge you on that. But for me, I, I try to take the approach of we all need to do what feels best for our body. Um, aside from whether it's an ethical thing or whatever, but like however your body operates the best and everybody is going to be different. And, and, and I don't know the science on any of the sides to even have a real conversation with it. But, uh, you know, my friend here in, in Austin, I'm sure you've heard of him, Paul Saladino is the carnivore with the carnivore code and he is is he is really hard on plants um to put it mildly um it's, I, I do appreciate that uh he does put out if you're going to eat these are the ones in his opinion that are less toxic or from his studying i should say i don't want to just say it's his opinion he does do his, a ton of research but there are people on both sides, all sides. There are so many sides to this thing. And I guess that's the question. Why do there have to be all these sides? Why can't we just be like, fucking Brendan, what have you learned about this? What are the benefits? Like, how does it make you feel? And like, just really glean from you, your experience. And what can I take from that to improve my own experience? And I don't have to fall into dogma around any of these things. Because I have fallen into dogma in my lifetime around several things. And I try to be very cautious of that now because it just blinds my judgment. And I don't fucking listen to you because you don't eat the way I do. And you, you know, very opposite, arguably, right? Um, but now I'm in a place in my life where I, I hold space for that, right? And Paul was actually supposed to come on the podcast about a week ago, but he traveled to South Africa. So he'll be coming on. Um, because I want to hear everybody's experience. You're not just going through the, the, the studies and saying this is the benefits. You're living proof. And for me, that really lands. You know, that is your experience. 
with this particular way of eating? And so I guess two questions. How aggressive do people get to, um, because they take it personally, they think you're judging them or whatever they feel, uh, you trigger something in them. So do you get a lot of pushback on that? And secondly, what does the conversation generally look like when someone's actually willing to listen? Yeah, good questions. I, you know, I actually don't get much pushback just because my approach is just, well, this is what I do and works for me. Mm, and beautiful. That's, and that's what I wrote my book based on too, is just because I was getting questions, you know, like I was improving at a faster rate than other people I was training with. That's how it started. And I think it was my focus on recovery. So people would say, what are you doing? And I would explain that I was learning all about nutrition and, you know, I was eating this and that and making this blender drink and it was all plants and I felt really good. And, and so it was really like frequently asked questions put into book form basically was what the first book was. So mm. that's still just, you know, it's just what I do and it works well for me. And I'm not really saying anything beyond that. Um, you know, it was interesting. So, so James Wilkes, he was on Rogan, um, a while with one of the debunkers and it was actually really, oh, I feel like watch. that came up with, was it with Chris Kresser? Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah so that was the first thing that came under debunk. Joe Rogan had Chris Kresser on. Okay. Yeah, so it was actually really good. I watched the the whole thing, um, and that was over a year ago now. But, uh, you know, it was just like, you know, James put so much thought into it, and, and he want, wanted the movie to be so tight. So they do have a, a, a science team, of course, and they can respond to everything. Um, you know, they didn't just put it out there. I know some of the other movies, some some vegan are, are pretty loose. This one was was really tight, and there will be, a really solid argument to to everything that is trying to be debunked and what you believe beyond that i I don't know i mean like science sometimes seems to conflict um so absolutely it's so nuanced and people don't want to believe that or they don't just understand that but not all studies are created equal and there are other factors that are involved that just can't account for the complexity of, of our human bodies and the way these things interact. And so I think this is a, a really a great topic for people to really understand. How can there be people that are feeling great benefits from eating completely the opposite? You know, it's because they can both work. These things can work. And again, I'm not speaking from experience. I'm only saying that based upon Someone like yourself and other people who eat this way seem to feel really good. And so the proof's in the pudding there. Well, and even, you know, obviously there's a very similar sort of narrative around politics too, right? Like people, some, some people who believe certain political things can't agree to disagree. They, they believe in right and wrong. Others just believe in difference of opinion. Yes. And they're, they're very different things. Like you can sit down and be like, yeah, well, we just don't agree, but that's okay. That's cool. And others are like, like they keep trying to make their case that they're right and you're wrong. Right. It's like, well, oh, okay, well, I can agree to disagree. You can't, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, it's just, sometimes you just come down to that. And, uh, yeah. And there's unfortunately, there's not enough of that out there right now. And hopefully that's where we're trending to just hold space for people to have different opinions 
based on, and again, I, I'm a, one of my big things that I beat the drum on here is I'm, I will honor your, your, we'll call it feelings, but the way you see things, if it's based upon your own experience, but if you're just, you know, parroting some facts that you read in a book or saw in a movie, and I've done it, don't get me wrong, it's not like I'm above that, but when it gets down to the nitty gritty, have you had an experience with this? It could be about psychedelics. Have you had an experience with this? So don't tell me that you know what you're talking about because you don't, well, they're dangerous and they're illegal. It's like, okay, so why are we having this conversation? Right, and, and so for me, when you've had the experience and you can speak to that, it's like, okay, man, that's your truth with it. Okay, I'm kind of interested to know like what your experience is about and how you know, how it may be different than mine. And I wonder what the factors are that, you know, made mine different than yours. And, you know, just having kind of having that conversation has made, has really opened my mind up to other people's opinions and experiences. Um, and being, I've been much more open to it, I guess, than I have in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I get it. it. You know, you get to a point in life too, where, you know, someone can say something that just seems so ridiculous, but you're just like, okay, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like, fine. <laughs> like that. You can think that I, it doesn't matter. I, I, I'm going to think what works for me is what I'm going to keep doing. And that's just not taking it personally. Yeah. Right. And I think that's maybe that's part of your Canadian upbringing. It's like, yeah, it's not taking that shit personally. That's your stuff, bud. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I want to ask you, um, what else what else are you doing with your time right now? Obviously, you've got pop culture in, in 101, but what, or is that taking up all your time besides the training? Yeah, it takes up a lot of time. Um, I, I still am involved with Vega as well. You know, I'm trying to, you know, do what I can to help out there. Also, too, I, I, I've gotten into to venture capital a bit, very, you know, mission-based venture capital. So working with a fund based in Switzerland called Blue Horizon. And so investing early stage in, um, in companies that are, are making food products that are, you know, plant-based. So alternatives to, to meat and dairy. And, uh, they, they've raised quite a bit of money. I believe it's 180 million euros. And, um, like I say, I'm a venture partner there. So helping find really good companies to, to help grow. I'm using some of the experience that I, I learned along the way with, with Vega to try and you know, help them not make the same mistakes I made and, you know, just help, help them from my experience. Um, also Lyra, which, so Charles, who we started Vega together, he started his family fund called Lyra, which, um, I'm involved with as well. A bunch of great companies there too. Again, same kind of idea, just like, you know, it took us 11 years. Like we can, we can help these guys. Like why just learn something and apply it once when you could learn it and apply it multiple times to help other people get to where they're trying to go. So it just seems to make a lot of sense. Um, like I say, growth capital. So Lyra is, is more of like a very hands-on, very, um, very involved, uh, type fund to, to, to help out these companies. Whereas uh, blue horizon, it's, it's a little more venture capital than growth capital, but, uh, it's a good mix there. So in, the, in the Lyra, is that just Charles's capital in your capital or are there other, you have outside investors as well? No outside investors, just the employees. Um, yeah. yeah. So we keep it very tight. Um, but yeah, that, that may change too over, over, um, the next few years, but yeah, it's a, you're doing that for a few years now. Um, 
And uh, yeah, it's great. Like, you know, one of the, the companies, um, Purus, that, that we work with, they supply the pea protein to Vega and to Beyond Meat and to you know, a lot of the, the copycats, which is great. So even if people want to, you know, copy Vega or Beyond Meat, it's oh, like, fine, be my guest. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, and they're great, great, great family um, based in the, in the Midwest. Farms are in Iowa, their office is in Minneapolis. But uh, yeah, the guy is a really good friend, actually, who, who's a CEO, young guy, mid-30s. Former football player, won a Super Bowl with the Saints. Um, his dad started the company as a plant breeder. Now Tyler runs it, and just you know, really great guy and say great friend. And um, so companies like that, you know, we love working with people like that who who are doing something so mission aligned and and just good people. Like you know, you get to a point in life too. You like I don't want to work with people I don't want to hang out with. You know, like Mark. Mark's the same same way, right? Yeah. Great guy, and just wanna we just want to hang out and just like hey, well, why not? do some business stuff too. That's fun. Yes. I love that. And it, it brings to mind this something that I've been working on with my partner, Ty, who you met before we got on Unlearned Ventures. And it's, you know, for 20 plus years, I've been investing in startups and, you know, seed round, series A, all that stuff. And really cut my teeth over a number of years with really not understanding how to do it. But all the different energy of, oh, I don't want to miss out on this or it's my friend's thing or in really getting clear about who I want to put my capital in my energy and my time and really kind of come in, as you said, with this growth, like how can I support, how can we support what these guys are doing? And by the way, first of all, do we connect with these people on a, like a really just an energetic level? Are they just good people? Are they? Yes. Okay. Well then they get to the next step. Well, and for us, it's generally post-revenue, the pre-revenue stuff. It's just outside my skill set to be able to do any of that heavy lift. And I feel helpless. And as you know, that's where so much of the, the capital risk is too, is that first tranche. Mm -hmm. You get to the next, I've been in so many of those that it gets to the next round and it's the same valuation. I'm like, son of a bitch. Like right. they're getting, you know, my money's been tied up for two years. Yep. But, but also, um, you know, it, it, as far as mission-based for us, it's like, does this bring us joy? Will, will we evangelize this product? Would we evangelize this product if we had no money involved? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is, eh, I don't know if I would, then we're not going to do it got to be something that we believe in and that we're going to tell people about regardless. And it's been really fun to, we've had, we spent hours and hours and hours just getting really clear on what that vision and mission is and understanding that it will shift over time as we do more of our due diligence and understand who we're called to work with and the lessons we, we've already learned some big lessons over the last, really in the last couple of weeks even. but just to like how to keep it, you know, the energy really good, but also keep it professional mm -hmm. and not let the, Oh, you're becoming friends with someone. And so there's a trust. And then all of a sudden they throw you a curveball, and you're like, no, oh, man, you just changed the valuation on us. Yeah. Wait, we already agreed on a deal. We're in paperwork right now. Like this, thanks for showing your hand because for me, now I know I don't really trust you. Mm -hmm. You just changed the valuation. You didn't even think twice about it. Or as far as the, the way you presented it to me was you're giving us less of the company at a higher valuation. Like what part of that, like, is that not a red flag for you? So anyway, 
that's the stuff that's fun for me. So it's, I'm glad to hear that you're venturing into that because it can be a really, it's for me, at least in this short run, when I've gotten really clear, it's been really fulfilling to wake up and figure out how can we support people that are doing some really amazing stuff. We don't need to create the products. It's not my orientation. I, I don't know. And I'm saying I won't ever create a product, but I'm more like, how can I get in? I've got a certain, you know, kind of network and there's a way to amplify what's going on. What can I do to support these people that are doing amazing work and have a cool product, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's so much value there, of course. You know, and your experience and everyone's experience magnified into some of these new companies can can be so valuable for them. A lot of guys, you know, they they're great operators, for example, but they have they, they don't have a network. They don't know how to get this out there. Um, so you can bring a lot of value for sure. So yeah, I'm really enjoying that too. Um, just, yeah, really just, it's, it's fun working with, with new, young, enthusiastic entrepreneurs. Yeah. Love it. I'm gonna ask you one more time. What does, with regards to our mutual investment, yours is obviously much bigger than mine, but what does success, what, what does a successful exit or what does success look like to you? I think people shifting the way they look at alcoholic beverages. And again, when I say people, it doesn't have to be everyone, but a, enough people for it to be meaningful that they're like, yeah, you know what? I, I can include this in my life. This, I feel good drinking this. this. This makes me feel good. And I'm not paying that social tax, as Mark calls it. And then, yeah, I think, you know, the margins are so good, so we wouldn't have to sell. I think we will, though, because in alcohol, as you know, I mean, there are very few big players and they acquire the smaller ones because they have distribution. Like, we're never going to have the distribution that some of these have, but they can't build brands, but we can. Yeah. So it's, it, it does make sense that we will be acquired. And, and with alcohol, it's, it's short, you know, it's, it's three years. It's not 11, not like Vega. Uh -huh. um, so... My, my best guess is, yeah, we will be acquired within three years. I cannot see it going beyond four. And that, that's a good thing because we will keep the brand true and we'll just get it to more people. And maybe the cost will come down because volume will be so high. Like, who knows? Like, there's going to be yeah. good things. It will be more accessible and likely it will be less expensive. Same as with Vega. That's what happens. You just, you build something and then a bigger company done right. You know, they have distribution and they have scale. And so, like we said, when we sold Vega, more plants to more people, which was the, the whole point. Like, we, we want this to be more accessible. We, we don't want it to be this elite thing. You should be able to go into Target and get really good quality plant-based products at uh. a reasonable price. And that was, you know, that's always been the mission with Vega, and it continues. And it's similar with Pulp Culture and 101, too. We want, we feel this is a really good product for, for all the reasons we just talked about. So getting it to more people is a good thing. So eventually selling probably is, provided we control, again, keep control of what the brand is going to be and that they're not going to put bad things in or anything, mm -hmm. like all the obvious stuff, but getting it to more people, making it more accessible, um, that's, that's the goal. Awesome. Where can people find you? So me, LinkedIn is really the best spot. That's, I keep that up to date. I do have a website. It's pretty outdated, brennanbrazier.com, but LinkedIn, I think there's a link to LinkedIn on the website, but, um, that's the best place. And then of course, um, that, you know, that links to 101, Pulp Culture, Vega, everything else. Awesome, brother. Thanks so much for coming on yeah, today. Thanks, 
You've been listening to The Great Unlearn. For more information, check out the show notes or head over to thegreatunlearn.com for additional episodes and information regarding events, retreats, and the TGU store. If you like what you heard today, please click subscribe and share this with friends who might enjoy our platform. Don't forget to leave that five-star rating and review as it really helps us spread the love and unlearning. You can find me on Instagram at cal.callahan and on YouTube under The Great Unlearn. Thanks for listening to The Great Unlearn, and we'll talk soon. No, no different, only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned.